All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope everyone is doing all right this morning. Today we are jumping into uh, uh, the book. We're going to be covering three chapters in the book today, so we're going to kind of have a bit of a uh, acceleration here on uh, the track we've been keeping, but that's okay. We're going to hit some of the highlights and uh, not try to get too technical or anything like that. Just wanted to really start diving into these three different or four different views, if you count dispensationalism and historic premillism as two different views, which I, I would. Um, and then we will kind of have some more overview, kind of really dive into what they what they think, and then talk about postmillennialism. And then talk a little bit about history. Where does it come from? Because there's a lot of people that would like to argue that post-mill is uh, not something that happens until the Reformation and it's something that has kind of gone away. Uh, I'd argue that neither of those statements are true. It is something that uh, is very historical um, in the church, very old in the church, and it's something that is uh, very substantiated even today uh, among modern theologians, well-respected theologians as well. Um, so that is uh, our goal for today. Uh, quite daunting, but we'll see if we can get through it all. Uh, but let me, before we start, let me read our scripture reading for today. If you'd like to turn with me there, I'm going to read Psalm 110. Psalm 110, um, which of course is one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Let us go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we examine uh, these eschatological views. Uh, I pray that uh, though uh, some of this can get technical, that it can be very detailed, Lord, that uh, it would be uh, nonetheless enlightening that it would be nonetheless edifying to us, that it would be encouraging to us, that we would uh, uh, see these things, uh, that we would be encouraged um, in the scriptures, we would be encouraged in your promises, uh, and that we would be comforted, even though we may uh, be going through many trials in many different areas of our lives, uh, that you are still in control, and that you are bringing all things out toward a victorious end. And for that, we are so grateful uh, to you. And we thank you so much, especially for that salvation that comes only through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I'll open with another quote from another famous thinker who may not have described himself as post-mill, but I'll read this quote anyway, because I think it kind of frames things very nicely as it kind of talks about some of the objections that we'll talk about to post-millennialism. I'll start the quote and I'll tell you who said it afterward, though some of you could probably guess. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at any point in the night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our own situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors in aesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. 
This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let the bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing our children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can even do that, but they need not dominate our minds. That was C.S. Lewis writing after the conclusion of the Second World War. Why do I bring up that quote? C.S. Lewis was not, didn't have a dog in this fight. He was not in the Reformed world, um, nor was he talking about post-millennialism and amillennialism. But at least the point that he draws out in this quote is that there are many bad things going on in history and unfortunately as we engage with those who have critiques of post-millennialism one of their first critiques is going to be well look at how terrible the world is how on earth could you adopt an eschatological view that is hopeful that is optimistic why are you optimistic as we sit there <laughs> <laughs> very good point but even if even if the bombs were to drop today in America and things were uh, to go uh, to, toward uh, an unhappy end where we are, uh, there is still, I'd say, reason for optimism. And at least, at the very least, C.S. Lewis proposes to us, really to all Christians, regardless of what is going on in your current milieu, in your current, to use a French fancy term, in your current situation, current cultural situation, Christians have a duty here it is, do so with utmost, utmost gusto, do exactly what you are told to do, trust in the promises of God, do human things, and if, if death and destruction were to find us, at least let it find us doing good things, trying to advance the kingdom of God. And that is, of course, my challenge to any of the uh, brothers and sisters, regardless of your eschatological position, that your, your call does not change. Your call is to be faithful. Your call is to still continue to fight and press forward against the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of God. But all that to say, I do think there is reason for optimism. And so at least today I would like to start talking about optimistic thinking in eschatology. Now most people believe that our eschatological view, postmillennialism, is uh, antiquated. And if you have your book, uh, you can start. We're going to be going through chapters 2, 3, and 4 um, at a kind of rapid pace. But looking into chapter 2, it kind of gives the purpose of this treatise. And I've kind of already laid out what that purpose is. There are so many that think that there is no reason to be optimistic anymore. Um, if you look through chapter 2, he, he fills out the entire chapter with quote after quote showing how especially those who are those who are in the pre-mill camp or in what we would call the dispensationalist camp are convinced that post-millennialism is something that is completely untenable. Something that is kind of a, a historical artifact that no one really believes in the views and the tenets of post-millennialism anymore. That this was something that we can study. Um, this is something that we can look back. Um, this is, uh, but it's not something that you can find out in the wild here anymore. Which, of course, I would say that's uh, completely uh, wrong. I'm looking now at page 43, and you'll have to have to apologize to you. My the book that I have, and I don't know if some of you have, have noticed that this is in my copy. Half the pages come out whenever I'm reading the book, so it's hard to <laughs> turn to the right page. Gentry just yesterday on Facebook. Oh, good. I might have to I might have to purchase that so I can <laughs> flip through a little bit easier. Um, but I'm looking at page 43, and he has many of uh, these quotes from people that. Uh, really, most I would say most people in the evangelical church are going to as experts on uh, eschatology, on how we ought to view the end times. Um, and this is what they're saying about, uh, about our position. Uh, in, in 1936, Lewis Schaefer writes, uh, post-millennialism is dead. 
It is dead in the sense that there are, it offers no living voice in its own defense when the millennial question is under discussion. Uh, another says, devout post-millennialism post has virtually disappeared. Uh, Walverd, uh, who is quite uh, famous in his own right, said post-millennialism post is not a current issue in millennialism. Uh, they keep switching the way that they say this word, and it gets very tongue-twisting. It's not a current issue in the discussion on the millennium. In eschatology, the trend away from post-millennialism because almost a route with the advent, it is almost in route with the advent of what? Of World War II, which is exactly why I brought up the Lewis quote as I did. Uh, even uh, another would say this theory is largely disproved by the progress of history. It is practically a dead issue. So most people just quoting uh, the history uh, saying that if we believe in uh, post-millennialism, that history is getting better and better and better over time, that history has disproved that. It seems to be getting worse and worse and worse all the time, especially after uh, the, the advent of the atomic bomb. And then lastly, uh, in 1970, how Lindsay said there used to be a group called post-millennialists. No self-respecting scholar who looks at the world conditions and the accelerating decline of Christian influence today is a post-millennialist. But are they correct? Is this an accurate way to view how post-millennialism still sits in the modern situation? This, I think, is not an accurate way to view. And we will go through, and if you turn... Uh, to ch if we're, we're looking ahead, we're going to end today by looking at chapter 4 of this book because in chapter 4 he will then show not only uh, is uh, this an his historic event, but this is something that we can track even back from the ancient church, the post-millennialism at the very least, maybe they're not called that by its adherents in the ancient church, but there was a very strong optimism um, in some of the very big names of the ancient church um, and that that pulls through all the way through history and then of course he then mentions uh, a long list of names of people who are respected, well respected in the theological community um, in the reformed world that hold to a post-mill view so that it is substantiated in all areas of history that there are those um, in each age as you can find that have an optimism about history, where it's going, an optimism about the gospel, how the gospel is being uh, spread and an optimism about the church. The church is growing in nation after nation after nation and this is all the fulfillment of prophecy. This is something that we look forward to because of the promises of God and him working through his church using practical means uh, to grow her. So that is what we're going to be doing. But first we do have to jump at the chapter 3 and what does he talk about in chapter 3? Well he's going to give what he calls uh, the pessimistic millennial views. Now we talked about, and I'll reiterate uh, the way that we talked about history, right? We talked about that you can view it as a, on a trajectory upwards, which is a more post-millennial view. You can view it on a trajectory downwards, which is going to be that more pre-millennial view. And then you can have that more flat view, which is what uh, we might call the off-millennial view. Now why uh, does he then go on to call both the flat view and the kind of trajectory downwards view? Why does he call them both pessimistic? Well, he's going to basically assert um, that if you are just viewing things as static, if you're viewing them, if there is really no millennium to look forward to, um, if there's no a way in which the world is going upwards, well, then a flat view is also going to be pessimistic. And he's going to quote some of the men uh, there um, as he begins to show that even the all-mills uh, have a more pessimistic view about them in the way they view uh, the, the work of evangelism, the way they view the growth of the church, even though they, they, they believe the church is growing, even though they do believe we are in the millennium right now, um, their view of these things is that the evil is also meeting and growing to rise, uh, meeting to rise, uh, the rising uh, uh, church. And so if evil is rising as well, um, then darkness continues to rise and we should expect things to, uh, to get worse on some level, or at least we don't have reason for hope except in that last uh, what we might call uh, a new catastrophic event that it just out of nowhere Christ shows up and then uh, the darkness is shattered. But right for right now we can't expect uh, the church to um, to push back the darkness um, at least in a huge substantiary sense. Right, the church does push back the darkness as maybe uh, what some all millennials may call outposts in the wilderness. Um, but that is uh, uh, that is basically all we can hope for. 
um, as far as uh, uh, they don't, the optimism is concerned. So that is where, where we're going to be seeing these uh, millennial positions, these what he calls the pessimistic millennial views. And then we'll actually have a more succinct definition. Um, and if you have uh, your book with you, he does provide uh, some little charts for us as we kind of look at what these uh, views entail. Because what, what all these views are really concerned with, and he does kind of say, and, and all uh, many of the people talking about eschatology kind of bemoan the fact that everything is kind of based around a single chapter in the Bible, and that is Revelation 20. That, that the post-mill, all-mill, and pre-mill uh, views on things are really talking about what do you believe about Revelation 20. Uh, and yet, if you ask a pre-mill, if you ask an all-mill, or you ask a post-mill what it is they believe about eschatology, they're going to tell you about thousands of things that have nothing to do with Revelation 20, and yet the debate centers around this one thing. And so he even quotes other uh, uh, theologians from other positions saying, uh, maybe, maybe we could find a better way to describe it, because it's not just about uh, Revelation 20, and yet... Um, what we're going to see in these charts is what do you believe about when the millennium comes and what's going to happen before and after that. So let's begin where he begins. He begins by, and he begins with all millennialism. And of course, this is going to be the closest position to our own. And this, this class uh, is going to be quite a bit of, of reading in some of the ways that he defines these things. And so he, he uses Kim Riddleberger, who is a, 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 one of the more uh, famous all-millennialists who wrote a book defending all-millennialism. And Kim Riddleberger defines, uh, Kim is a, is a man, um, and defines it this way. He defines all-millennialism like this. He says, all-millennialists hold that the promises made to Israel, David, and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his church during this present age. The, millennial, the millennium, that is what is described in Revelation 20, is the period of time between the two advents of our Lord, the two comings of the Lord, with the thousand years of Revelation 20 being symbolic of the entire inter-advental age, that is, from his first coming to his second coming. At the first advent of Jesus Christ, Satan was bound by Christ's victory over him at Calvary in the empty tomb. The effect of this victory continued because of the presence of the kingdom of God via the preaching of the gospel and as evidenced by Jesus' miracles. Through the spread of the gospel, Satan is no longer free to deceive the nations. Christ is presently reigning in heaven during the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. At the end of the millennial age, Satan is released. A great apostasy breaks out. The general resurrection occurs. Jesus Christ returns in the final judgment for all people, and he establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you read that, on its face, that actually sounds pretty close to post-millennialism, and that's actually uh, true. And, and then there's the reason for that, is that all millennialism is actually a fairly new term. Uh, all millennialists are post-millennialists in the sense that they believe that the millennium is happening currently, or, or that it happens in between Christ's first and second coming, and then that Christ comes after the millennium. So, all mills, to be fair, are post mills in a very strict linguistic sense, right? Um, and so what they're describing there is going to be very similar to what we believe, but there's going to be a difference in uh, the ways in which they view or they have uh, uh, views about uh, the way things are going or what Christ is doing right now within his reign. He is reigning. The all mills will, will agree that Christ is reigning. He's on the throne right now. Um, but uh, the outworkings of that, maybe the, shall we say the more practical outworkings of that and how things are going right now um, are going to be different. So then Gentry kind of breaks it down for us in, in five different points to try to succinctly define uh, this view. He says, and we're now on page 70 if you're following along with me. Um, he says, the church age is the kingdom which the Old Testament, this is point number one, the Old Testament prophets predict. God expands his people from the one nation of Israel to, in the Old Testament to the universal church in the new, making this phrase of God's people the Israel of God, which he's quoting Galatians 6 right there. That Israel um, is, the, the true Israel is the church at this point in time. Number two, Christ binds Satan during his earthly ministry. At his first coming, his binding prevents Satan from stopping the gospel being proclaimed. 
This allows multitudes of sinners to convert to Christ and ensures some restraint upon evil. Number three, Christ rules spiritually in the hearts of believers. We may expect occasional short-lived influences of Christianity on culture and society, especially when Christians live out the implications of their faith. And there is one point of disagreement. We can only expect occasional and short-lived influences from Christians. And then four, history will gradually worsen as evil's growth accelerates towards the end. This will culminate in the Great Tribulation when arise, the arising, with the arising of a personal anti-Christ. And number five, Christ will return to the end, to end history, resurrect all men, conduct the final judgment, and establish the eternal order. The eternal destiny of the redeemed may be either in heaven or in a totally renovated new earth. And you'll see um, there, right, that, that actually is pretty uh, accurate to a lot of all millennial views that they will focus a lot by talking about heaven. Um, so it says, maybe either in heaven or in a totally renovated new earth. Many all millennialists have a very spiritual um, aspect to the way that they view uh, the where we are going, where things are going in the end, and they believe uh, more as, as far as the telos of humans, what men were created for, what mankind was created for. Um, was to actually uh, even be in heaven, in the highest heavens with God. And they seem, in, in my view, and they seem to uh, discount uh, the importance of the earth um, and the physical earth. Well, I would, I would have a very strong uh, view, and I think most post-mills uh, would as well, a strong view that God, the, God created the world as being good. Uh, the world is good. Um, the physical is good. It is cursed right now because of sin. Um, but that what we are expecting in the end... Um, is a renovation, that is, a renewal of the heavens and the earth. We're going to have a new heavens and new earth. Um, and then we will be able to do that which Adam and Eve were called to do from the very beginning, which is take dominion of the earth. Um, but you'll see even here in this point five, this emphasis in the all-millennial view. And this is not all all-millennials. I'm not uh, painting uh, a brush toward all of them, but many of them have this view that everything was always aimed at heaven to begin with, and earth becomes almost, a, uh, almost an afterthought. Um, which I, I believe to be um, a, a misstep in the way that we, we read scripture and its trajectory. Um, but if you have, and this is one of the pages that came out, so if you have, this is page uh, 71, um, you can see uh, there is a view, and actually, since I don't need this page, if you'd like to pass this around, you can actually see the view um, and the trajectory, the way that history um, is moving forward um, and how it's actually, well, moving downwards in the way that they view these things. You can see it's very flat still, but the things eventually are moving toward because they believe in the, this great apostasy that's being spoken of. That that means if that's, that's the end point and we have no belief that there's a trajectory upwards, well then there has to be a point where things are dipping down. Uh, and so the still, because of this notion, is still going to have this pessimistic view. We then will move to... The second eschatological position that he brings up, which is going to be dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has quite a few uh, kind of distinctives to it. And dispensationalism is a system. I would not necessarily describe it merely as an eschatological position. Uh, why do I say that? Because there are many different ways in which uh, the entirety of the scripture is viewed. Um, there are many different uh, beliefs about many different things um, as far as dispensationalism is concerned. But it has a great emphasis on the way that it views eschatology as well. Um, and so uh, while it only took five points uh, for Gentry to outline that, it's going to take him nine um, to outline dispensationalism and what dispensationalism is. So bear with me as we jump through uh, these uh, nine, as he describes this, and the chart for what dispensationalism looks like is a little bit more complicated um, than the all-mill one that uh, is being passed around right now. Um, so these are the nine descriptive features he has for dispensationalism. Number one, redemptive history. So redemptive history, that's referring to that, that history in which God redeems his people. What does redemption mean? What does salvation mean? Redemptive history is divided up into seven categorically distinct dispensations. Dispensations is just a period of time. 
wherein God works with men within each dispensation in different ways. This is why it is called dispensationalism. God works with men in different ways in different periods of history. Christ offers renewed Davidic kingdom and earthly political structure to the Jews in the first century. They reject it, leading him to postpone until the future. That there was a kingdom, but the Jews rejected this, and now there is a postponement. The church age is a holy, unforeseen, and distinct era in the plan of God. It was altogether unknown to and unexpected by the Old Testament prophets. What does this mean? This means that the way that they, they read prophecies is going to be radically different. Um, the way that they view uh, what Isaiah is saying, what Ezekiel is saying, what Jeremiah says, um, is going to have to refer specifically to the nation of Israel because that was plan A. Now... Uh, they have rejected that plan, and there is plan B going on right now. So the church age is not something that the, the prophets speak of um, in the dispensational mindset. Number four, God has a separate and distinct program and plan for racial Israel as distinguished from the church. The church of Jesus Christ is a parenthetical aside in the original plan of God. Where do they go to prove this? Well, they say when Paul says... Uh, that many are being brought into the church to make Israel jealous, they would look at that and say, well, this is God using the church for his original plan. What well, was his original plan? The salvation of Israel. And therefore, the church, we are here to entice the Jews back to God. Right? We are making them jealous, and hopefully, then they will come back to God, and that then will fulfill those prophecies that Israel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, etc., are speaking to, because it's not speaking of the church. Number five, the church may experience occasional small-scale success of history. We'll see a recurring theme here. But unfortunately, she will lose influence, fail in her mission, and become corrupt as worldwide evil intensifies toward the end of church age. This portrays their, their uh, pessimistic view of the way the church is going. Number six, and here's where things get quite distinctive. Christ will return secretly in the sky to rapture living saints and resurrect the bodies of deceased saints the first resurrection he is removing them out of the world before the great tribulation the judgment of the saints transpires in heaven during the seven year great tribulation period before Christ's bodily return to the earth so there's really a first a, a second and a third coming of Christ Christ comes first but he doesn't come to the earth and show everyone his glory he comes maybe Halfway, He meets us in the clouds, and he brings us up to the clouds with him, and then comes the tribulation. At the conclusion of the great tribulation, Christ will return to the earth in order to establish and personally administer a Jewish political kingdom headquartered in Jerusalem for a literal 1,000 years. During this time, Satan will be bound, and the temples and sacrificial system will be reestablished in Jerusalem as memorial. So you see, this is all coming back to the way that they view uh, those prophecies, right? If the prophecies are specifically referring to uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish people rejected it. Now we are being in that postponing period, trying to uh, entice them uh, as, as God is saving us into coming back. And then in that millennium, they will come back in, in, their, in their view. And then that is a literal thousand years. And this becomes one of their sticking points for us, right? They will say, well, we, we view this thousand years as something uh, metaphorical, and this is liberal of us. Why would we why would we dispute that it says 1,000 years? Therefore, it must be 1,000 years. Um, so this is one of their critiques levied against us. Number eight, toward the end of that millennial kingdom, Satan will be loosed so that he may surround and attack Christ at Jerusalem. And number nine, Christ will call down fire from heaven to destroy his enemies. The second resurrection and judgment of the wicked will occur, initiating the eternal order. And this page actually is staying in the book, so I can't pass around the, um, the chart for us to look at the way that they view history. But you can see how it's very, very complicated. You have this point. This has to happen before this has to happen before this has to happen. And you see um, this uh, kind of trajectory there. But it's all very situated around the fact that uh, essentially um, the way that modern Jews view those prophecies has to be in some way influential upon the way that we view those prophecies. Um, that's really kind of at the heart of what's going on. Um, 
it's funny if you if you see the page that I'm, that I'm passing around, he he starts to list out the adherents of each view, um, and he shows in the ancient church who viewed things under a more amillennialist perspective and tries to bring you up through history to show that these views, uh, where these views are substantiated throughout history. Um, I, I I just have to chuckle at the way that he he substantiates this view. Um, when he says, right after all of this, he says, representative adherence in the ancient church, none, created circa 1830, which is, of course, true, right? Uh, dispensationalism was a novelty in the 19th century. Um, these seven dispensations were created, and I, I apologize because uh, uh, the man who created this uh, is escaping my mind. It was um, eventually very popularized um, by uh, Schofield and the Schofield Bible. Um, uh, Dar oh, Darby, yes. Excuse me. It was Darby was the, uh, the one who, and, and, and there's a, a very very famous story of him uh, spending almost a year, uh, almost in isolation as he is going to the Bible and, and, and finding where these seven dispensations can be found and marking them and saying, this is how God saved people at this part, and this is how he saved them at this part, and he has it all uh, nicely very cut up into these seven dispensations. Uh, people in the modern church that uh, would hold this uh, this view to some extent or another, and I want to be fair, right? There are differences in the way that, that all of these views are approached. And so I don't want to, to lump them all in together and say they, they believe exactly the same thing. Uh, but famous people that you would probably have heard of, Norman Geisler, uh, Hal Lindsey, uh, John MacArthur, uh, Jay Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, and John Walverd to name a few of the big names out there who are um, advocating for this view. But then there is the view that is shouting, don't lump us in with them, please define us as well. That is the premillennialist, right? The historic premillennialist, um, because they do believe that Christ is coming um, and that he will establish a millennium after he comes, but they do not hold um, this way of viewing the prophecies like this in the same way. And so they would, uh, they would like it if we define their position for them um, over and against uh, the dispensational side. So this is what the pre-mill uh, will say. Number one, the New Testament era church is the initial phase of Christ's kingdom, which the Old Testament anticipates, especially in its prophetic book. So we would say, uh, uh, good on y'all for actually seeing that the prophecies of the Old Testament are looking at the church, right? There is this continuity. So they are they are agreeing with us. The all-mills and the pre-mills and the post-mills all at least agree on the continuity that the prophecies were anticipating Christ and the church. The New Testament, number two, church may win occasionally occasional victories in history, but ultimately she will fail in her mission, lose influence, and become corrupted as worldwide evil increases toward the end of the current church age. That's basically the direct quote from uh, the previous. The church will pass through future worldwide unprecedented time of travail. During this period, a personal antichrist will arise, possessing great religious and political power. This era is known as the Great Tribulation, which will punctuate the end of con contemporary history. Historic premillennialists differ significantly from dispensationalists in that their system is post tribulational. Uh, that is, Christ does not return before uh, the tribulation. So there is no rapture, that is, that Christ meets us halfway and brings his saints out before the tribulation occurs. Christ will return at the end of the tribulation to rapture the church, resurrect deceased saints, and conduct the judgment of the righteous in the twinkling of an eye. Christ will descend to the earth with his glorified saints, fight the battle of Armageddon, bind Satan, and establish a worldwide political kingdom which Christ will personally administer for 1,000 years from Jerusalem. Historic premillennialists often do not demand that Revelation's 1,000 years, though, is a literal 1,000 years. So unlike the dispensationalists, it may not be a literal 1,000 years. At the end of the millennial reign, Satan will be loose and will cause a massive rebellion against the millennial kingdom in a fierce assault against Christ and the saints. And number seven, God will intervene with fiery judgment to rescue Christ and the saints. The resurrection and the judgment of the wicked will occur, and the eternal order will begin. The eternal order may be either a, re a recreated material new heavens and new earth, or it may simply be a heavenly environment. So again, we are seeing there is a, a possibility, at least within this system, uh, that things can be almost entirely spiritualized, right? We are not having a 
a physical uh, earth that we are looking forward to. People that would come, that would uh, hold to this view. Um, a lot of these names I did not uh, recognize at all. Um, as if we are looking in the ancient church, uh, there are some, though, some big names in the ancient church that would hold to something or something similar to this. Um, Justin Martyr, the very famous uh, early apologist, would have had something similar to this. Um, Irenaeus, uh, one of the famous uh, people that wrote against heresies in the early centuries, believed in something like this. And Tertullian as well, uh, the person who uh, most people call him the, the inventor of, of Latin theology. He's the first person to write in Latin extensively as he defended the faith. In the modern realm, we see uh, Craig Bloomberg, uh, J. Oliver Baswell in Reformed Circles, um, and then Wayne Grudem is perhaps the biggest name of the person who would hold to this view. So these are the three views. But what about our view? Or at least what about my view? I don't want to impose anything upon you. Um, but what about post-millennialism? Post-millennialism has some different ways of viewing all of these things. Gentry says, and we're going to now start in on chapter 4. He says, I would succinctly define postmillennialism as follows. Postmillennialism holds that the Lord Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom of earth through his preaching and redemptive work in the first century, and that he equips his church with the gospel, empowers her by the Spirit, and charges her with the great commission to disciple all nations. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history with the general resurrection and the final judgment after which eternal order follows. So you can see there is a similarity to the way in which Kim Riddleberger defined amillennialism. There is a noted difference in tone. Uh, we do believe with the amill that God, uh, Christ is reigning here and now. But we have this emphasis especially upon Matthew 28 and the commission that is given to the disciples by Christ at this time and an expectation that if Christ commissioned <coughs> us to do something and if he commanded us to do something that there is uh, a success that we should expect in that. Um, we believe as, uh, as the Reformed that, that God is the one doing all of this though using us, uh, though using imperfect vessels um, to fulfill uh, the, this great commission. He is still the one who is ultimately bringing it about. And if that is true, if he has told us to go forth and do something, um, and if he is the one working through us to accomplish it, then it shall be accomplished. So when Christ says, go therefore and disciple all nations, well then we should expect that all nations shall indeed be discipled. And what does it mean to disciple? Well, Christ even defines it for us. He says that men will be baptized. That is, they will be Come Christians, they will enter into the church and they will be taught all things that I have commanded you, he says, right? So they will learn, they will grow, um, and they will grow in righteousness and holiness, as we would expect. They will be sanctified. If an individual is sanctified over his or her lifetime, we would expect a group of individuals to be uh, sanctified over their lifetime or collected lifetimes as far, and we can uh, move that outward and outward. The church is being sanctified, nations are being sanctified. So here is that key difference. And I will quickly go through how he shows then that historically this is not something that is new. He brings up the fact that many people want to say that Daniel Whitby in the 1600s invented post-millennialism. Um, this is uh, uh, ridiculous. Um, and um, he was Unitarian, to, uh, to put it mildly. He was not... He's not in our camp anyways. Um, a Unitarian is not even a Christian. They, believe, they don't believe in the Trinity. Um, but where do we see post-millennialism come? Well, he says 
uh, he, he shows that many of the premillennialists and many of the dispensationalists write book after book after book trying to show that in the first two centuries that you can't find any reason for optimism, that everyone was expecting Christ to return like right then, and that there was almost everyone was premillennialist. He says, no, let's look back at some of the early church fathers, and he shows some of the big names, and this is kind of uh, one of the, the points in our favor, I would say. As far, though we can see some, some of the big names are for amillennialist or uh, premillennialist views, um, uh, we have three men that are very famous in the ancient church uh, that would hold to a very optimistic view. The first of those men that I'm going to bring up is the first church historian uh, by the name of Eusebius. Now, he was writing around the year 325. Well, that is a big event that is happening in 325 that might give him reason for hope. The Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea, yes. And Eusebius describes um, in great detail, with great imagery, uh, this, this glorious thing that is occurring. What is the Council of Nicaea? The Council of Nicaea um, was called to uh, discuss, essentially, this heresy called Arianism. Um, Arianism uh, was the view that Christ is not eternal, um, that Christ did not uh, live from eternity with the Father, that the Father created him. Um, and so the council is called to meet this, but the whole church comes. And why does the whole church come? Uh, what makes it possible for the whole church to come? Well, Constantine, the emperor of the entire Roman world, is Christian, and he calls the council himself. And so Eusebius describes this beautiful picture for his readers as he, he writes the first church history. And he says that men who you can still see the great scars upon uh, their, their flesh uh, because of the, the torturous existence that they've had to live for being Christians in the Roman Empire, the whippings that they've had to endure, uh, being terrorized um, and being attacked and, 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 and their lives uh, being attempted at, that they are now standing there in the palace of the emperor in Constantinople in clothes, in, in beautiful clothing, um, and standing there with the emperor and his attendants and the purple guard is standing watch protecting them whereas before the purple guard the praetorian have been killing them and arresting them and he says there is great reason then for hope yeah um that is true, and many many premillennialists will actually will will deride this. They will they will make fun of Eusebius and others for, or they'll not even make fun of him. They'll deride this and say that he he gave false hope to the church by the way that he described this. But I'll I'll at least read uh, some of the the way that he talks about this on page ninety seven. Uh, there are some quotes um, from from uh, Eusebius, and this is what he says: According to Isaiah. It will be when they behold this very salvation that all men will worship the supreme God who has bestowed his salvation on all ungrudgingly. The oracle shall be fulfilled, which said that all men should call no longer on their ancestral gods, nor on idols, nor on demons, but on the name of the Lord and shall serve him under one yoke. Now, is he describing universalism? No. Uh, Eusebius was most certainly not a uh, universalist. The way that he talked about heretics makes that very clear. Um, but he, he has all these quotes, and I would encourage you, if you have the book, to, to read some of these quotes from Eusebius as it shows that he has this great hope that the gospel is going forth and the nations are changing. Now, we might say, of Eusebius, we might say, well, he, he saw the Council of Nicaea. This is, he was writing during the Council of Nicaea, and so he, he had rose-colored glasses. I mean, that's understandable, right? I mean... We see, when you see the emperor of the known world uh, convert to Christianity and call all the leaders of the church together, yeah, you might be optimistic, but that was one point in history. And, and, and how, could, um, how could he have, uh, how can we say we, have to, we should follow up because he had those views? Uh, well, then we move on to the second big name, and his name uh, was Athanasius. Now, Athanasius, uh, he also had a very optimistic post-mill idea of the world and, and how things were going to be changing. Um, but what is different about Athanasius? Well, he, at one point in the history of the church, felt as though he was the only person arguing for 
the Orthodox Christian position. Because you see, though the Council of Nicaea met and though it condemned Arianism, Arianism spread like wildfire throughout the church. Constantine himself uh, was uh, had one of his his uh, uh, his advisors as a preacher who was actually an, an Arius preacher, Arian, uh, yeah, an Arian preacher. And so Athanasius, though he was the one of the lead bishops in Constantinople, was thrust from his seat uh, about five or six times uh, because he preached against Arianism. Um, and emperor after emperor after emperor uh, wanted to at the very least have sympathies toward, if not outright believed, in Arianism itself. And it seemed like all of Western Europe uh, was believing in Arianism. So Athanasius actually has every reason to not be very optimistic, um, as he is on the run for his life many different times in his life and runs out into the middle of the desert in Egypt to flee for his life. And yet... It seems that he still had a very optimistic view. And I'll read one of his quotes. But if the Gentiles are honoring the same God and gave the law to Moses and made the promise, the same God who gave the law to Moses and made the promises to Abraham and whose Lord the Jews dishonored, why are the Jews ignorant or rather why do they choose to ignore that the Lord foretold by the scriptures um, has shown forth upon the world? and appeared to it in bodily form, as the scripture said. What then has not come to pass that the Christ must do? What is left unfulfilled that the Jews should not disbelieve with impunity? For if, I say, which is just what we actually see, there is no longer king, nor prophet, nor Jerusalem, nor sacrifice, nor vision among them, but even the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God. And the Gentiles, leaving their godlessness, are not now taking refuge with the God of Abraham through the word even our Lord Jesus Christ, then it must be plain even to those who are exceedingly obstinate that the Christ is come and that he is illumined absolutely all with his light. So one can fairly refute the Jews by the, these and by other arguments with the divine scripture. It is right for you, uh, you to realize and to take the sum of what we have already stated and to marvel at it exceedingly. Namely, that since the Savior has come among us, idolatry not only has no longer increased, but what there was is diminishing and gradually coming to an end. And not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer advance, but what there is is now fading away. And to sum the matter up, behold, how the, doc how the Savior's doctrine is everywhere increasing, while all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and losing power and failing. For as when the sun is come and darkness no longer prevails, but if any be still left anywhere, it is driven away. So now... That the divine appearing of the word of God has come, the darkness of the idols prevailing no more. In all parts of the world, in every direction, are illumined by his teaching. Athanasius, despite the situation of his own life, has great optimism for the way in which the sun, now being come, is shattering the darkness and going in all directions. And the world is changing. And he even talks about very a specific instance, idolatry, right? Idolatry that is prevalent amongst the barbarians that the Romans knew very well. The Romans themselves being polytheists. And yet that is diminishing over time. And he has great hope that it will continue to. Now there's one other name that if we can claim, it is a great boon to us. His name also started with an A. His name is Augustine. Augustine, or Augustine, as many people say. Uh, Augustine, originally, at one point in his life, would have considered himself a premillennialist. But Augustine turned away from such a system and held to a very optimistic view of the way the gospel was going forth. And I'll read some of the quotes that he has here from his book that we talked about last time, which is The City of God. The City of God is a very famous work. Um, uh, Pelican, a very famous church historian, says that if there is any name in the ancient church that is still an intellectual weight amongst not only Christians, but amongst all men in the modern world, it is Augustine, and most chiefly his book, The City of God. Um, there are man, man after man uh, seeking the PhD uh, will find lots and lots of meat to write dissertation after dissertation on uh, in this book just because of how much uh, the, the saint 
uh, Augustine writes about, what he says about history, what he says about the Bible, what he says about uh, the gospel going forth and the point to history, um, which we talked about last time. But these are some quotes from the city of God. Moreover, we already see the graven and molten things, that is, the idols of the false gods, exterminated through the gospel and given up to oblivion as of the grave. And we know that this prophecy is fulfilled in this very same thing. The prophecy he's referring to is a prophecy in Nahum 1 and 2. The tents of Ethiopia, he says, shall be greatly afraid, and the tents of the land of Midian, that is, even those nations which are not under the Roman authority, being suddenly terrified by the news of thy wonderful works, shall become a Christian people. Wert thou angry at the rivers, O Lord? Or was thy fury against the rivers? Or was thy rage against the sea? This is said, because he does not know, not now come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And later, Augustine comments on Haggai 2.6, which says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet one little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will move all nations, and the desired of the all nations shall come. And then Augustine comments, The fulfillment of this prophecy is in part already seen, and in part hoped for in the end. So we see all nations move to the faith, and the fulfillment of what follows, and the desired of all nations shall come, is looked for at the last coming. For ere men can desire and wait for him, they must believe and love him. He goes on to speak also this way of kings of Rome and of this great hope that we are seeing. But that's just the ancients. What about the medievals? There are medievals that have post-mill tendencies as well. I say tendencies because, of course, post-mill, all-mill, pre-mill, these terms don't come about for hundreds of years. That's not to say that there is what we might call latent uh, post-mill thinking. In many in the medieval church, uh, the, uh, the theologian from the 11th century, Joachim, uh, uh, you may not recognize some of these names. These are mostly monks living in monasteries that are writing. But not to say that, that the only monks are writing about theology, but at least they're most of their writings have come to us through history. Um, Albertino uh, de Casal, uh, Gerhard Dinas de Burgo, um, but then we have a very famous name uh, that comes to us in the 13th century, a man by the name of Jan Hus, uh, who has views very similar to that. John Hus, of course, was the famous Czech reformer, or pre-reformer. Of course, he was a few hundred years before the Reformation. Um, and of course, I would mention um, though we don't have time to get into it, I would say that if you look in the early Middle Ages, um, that you see uh, just a very post-millennial spirit as it relates to uh, the barbarians, right? If you're talking about the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, order seems to have collapsed. There's every reason uh, to have a very pessimistic view, and yet um, what do we see of the, uh, the way in which the missionaries go out into the barbarians, the way that uh, someone like uh, St. Patrick goes out to the barbarians in Ireland and spreads uh, not only Christianity as such in a very spiritualizing way, but a very uh, ordering way. And the order of Ireland, the political order, is changed radically and transformed um, as Ireland goes from many chaotic, warring tribes uh, to a, a very ordered, orderly society, a Christian society, and begins to actually evangelize the rest of Europe. Um, there is then, of course, uh, the ways in which uh, the missionaries went out to the Germans as well, going out to the north, um, cutting down uh, trees that were ancient uh, and uh, pagan trees and building churches uh, with these trees uh, and, uh, and other stories uh, like this. And then, of course, the ways in which kings viewed their position as divinely appointed, that they were given political power by God and they must use it well and they were accountable to him for their actions. Uh, we think of the way that Charlemagne wrote. We think of the way that uh, Alfred the Great, the first king of England, wrote, and the way he viewed his mission as he made a law for the Anglo-Saxons and he pushed back against the Viking hordes to the north in England. And then, of course, the great Achilles heel in the Reformed tradition. Uh, we can look at one Mr. John Calvin. John Calvin is the one of the greatest theologians uh, to have lived and probably the greatest theologian of the Reformation. And he said this as he was addressing his book, his great book, 
the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and this is on page 105 if you're following along. He says this to the king, as he is essentially he would like the king to read his book. And he says, Our doctrine must tower unvanquished above all of the glory and above all the might of the world. For it is not of us, but of the living God and his Christ, whom the Father has appointed king to rule from sea to sea and from the rivers uh, even to the ends of the earth. And he is so to rule, to smite the whole earth with its iron and brazen strength, with its gold and silver brilliance, shattering it with the rod of his mouth and earthen vessels, just as the prophets have prophesied concerning the magnificence of his reign. Uh, Calvin, of course, would uh, put his money where his mouth was, as he did not sit, spend his days uh, in an academy writing every day. Uh, most of his time was consumed with leading not only the church, but the city itself of Geneva, um, as he was called to help them when things seemed very chaotic, and yet he was happy to do so, though sometimes uh, he was travailed by the people there, for sure, but he brought about a Christian order. The Puritans, of course, are almost uniformly post-millennial. Uh, the Puritans thought themselves to be uh, the heirs of John Calvin in England, and they brought to us, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if we had time, I would walk you through even some of the confession statements and some of the catechism statements as it speaks of how does God, or Christ as a king, how does he defend us by defeating his and our enemies in the conquering tone there of Christ's reign. We think of people like John Cotton, Thomas Goodwin, George Gillespie, John Owen, and Samuel Rutherford, to name a few. That then brings us to the moderns, and if you're on, if you're following along, that brings us to page 109 and 110, which shows a whole host of men in the modern age who would hold to a post-millennial view, uh, starting, of course, with famous hymn writers like Isaac Watts, like the Wesley brothers. John Edwards is among this list. Charles Hodge is among this list. Thornwell and Dabney, of course. A.A. Uh, A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresson Machen, John Murray, Lorraine Fetner, and then, of course, the famous R.C. Sproul, of course, held this position as well. Wait, I thought those were weirdos. <laughs> well, I guess not. R.C. Sproul is, is known very as beloved, right? He died a few years ago, but he is a beloved uh, man who wrote um, and brought reform thinking. Uh, really back to the forefront, right? The 20th century uh, was plagued uh, by dispensationalism uh, as far as, it, as its, its popularity all throughout uh, the West. Um, and yet R.C. Sproul, uh, the way that he wrote uh, was, was easy to understand, easy to access, and became very, very popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, and without a lot of his writings, uh, the Reformed Church would have gone almost unnoticed by popular culture. Um, and yet, uh, why, what, what encouraged him uh, to do such things? Uh, well, I would argue, if this is his view, uh, that his post-millennialism uh, is coming out, that he believes that though America seems to go be going one way, that if uh, if the, the doctrine that we hold, that the old theology we hold is indeed God's, if it is indeed Christ's, then it can and will have victory, and so we ought to move forward as good soldiers. All right. I can take a question. Um, <laughs> I have one minute on the clock. <laughs> Sorry, I tried to bring us through history, but there's a lot of history. 2,000 years is hard to cover. <laughs> it's good. It's just a comment. It's just refreshing because if you're on Facebook, like, there's just, almost every single person on your friends list is probably female. Mm -hmm. They have like such a pessimistic like everything. You know, I, I get a lot of Direct message from people once in a while. Christ is coming soon. Get ready. It's just stuff like that. So going through this is an absolute breath of fresh air. It's, it's excellent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, even within the reform world, coming back from Presbytery. <laughs> realize that there's a, a lot of, a lot of resistance to this region, particularly with the ethnicity 
Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think it's important. I think Jennifer touches on this in the later chapters. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when you mentioned dispensationalism, as Jimmy said, a lot of us came out of that understanding, even though this is a new understanding of, of eschatology as far as the history of Christianity. In order to have this view, it requires you to have an incorrect Yes, I'd say that the way um, the way that you have to view the Bible in order to, to hold to a dispensational view is to really start to run, run roughshod over the way in which Paul describes the church, um, that we are grafted into a covenant that is already existing, um, a covenant that's existed since Abraham. Um, I believe that uh, that when God promised Abraham a thousand generations, uh, though it may not be a literal one thousand generations, it seems to be uh, that that promise is still being fulfilled in the church, that we are the sons of Abraham, um, as, as Paul refers to in Romans 4. Um, and so if all that is true, um, then there is a continuity, not a discontinuity, um, between the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. I would, I would, I'd rather say the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. These two things are continuous. Um, you, have to, you have to kind of bring your, uh, bring your scissors to bear to try to separate them as far um, as you can to say that there's somehow something, some two things going on uh, there. So uh, yes, that would be my, my argument uh, for why. Uh, the dispensational view uh, is, is really hard to hold water uh, when taking the whole council of scripture into account. Kim. Okay, so since we're talking about these ancients, I find it interesting on you know, page 71 um, when it talks about the adherence to the honor view. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's the first generation. It's the polycarp women of Rome. Mm -hmm. It's the earliest. These are very early, yes. Amil, so he, he would consider those in the Amil as being uh, also those that really don't hold um, there's a millennium to speak of. Yeah, they say um, non millennial would be a better way to describe it, right? Most modern Amils would describe this as the millennium, which is a very personal way to speak. Um, but uh, to be strict with the. The modern sense of the all-mill term really means post-mill in many respects. Right. Um, but what he's describing these men as, and he says it has a similar conclusion, is that these men are saying there is no millennium to kind of map trajectory onto things going up or down. Um, and so it's, it still ends in that kind of flat view of, the, of a view of evil and good kind of rising to meet each other and, and never really... Uh, one prevailing over the other. Right. Our big disagreements in the modern Amel versus postponed is what that looks like. Right. And how we get there. And so right. what yes. And I and, and so what Gentry's saying by lopping these ancients within that is that the, these ancients don't seem to have a view of things getting better over time or getting worse over time, and they don't seem to have a view that the millennium has any bearing or that maybe there's even a millennium at all. Um, and so if that's the case, their view of history, their view of the gospel proclamation is just going to be a very flat view of it's not all getting better all at once, it's not all getting worse over time, it's just, it just is. Um, so, so, no, that's origin. Origin, 
Polycarp, yeah. He's, he's John. Uh, yes, I believe he was. He was John was his uh, his mentor. Polycarp is the famous one that uh, stood before the uh, all the masses and said, "Away with the atheists!" and made them all very mad before they killed him. Um, and then uh, they burned him at the stake, but that didn't work. He wasn't dying, and then they stabbed him. Yeah. Yeah. He said, "Away with the atheists!" as he was pointing to all the Roman polytheists. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Uh, let's uh, wrap this up. Let's see. Uh, Will, would you like to pray for us as we depart? Yes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to study your word, to study the direction in which you have um, sent all things. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you that your history is redemptive that your plans are purposeful, that they are to glorious ends, and that we can take comfort that you are ruling and reigning even now as our king. Uh, We thank you for your sovereign rule. We thank you for your perseverance. Um, We thank you for keeping your saints, for keeping your church, for nurturing us through your means of grace so that we may be victorious, not in of ourselves, but by you. Um, We look to you even now as you are reigning. We look to you even now as we worship you. We pray for the worship of your people today, here and now, and throughout the city, um, that you may be glorified by the worship of your people, that the meditations of our hearts and of our mouths, they may be glorifying to you. And all these things we pray in the precious name of your Son, Christ. Amen. Amen.